Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa from QuickBook Reviews. Two author interviews and five book reviews. How are you all doing? Oh, my goodness. Right. Okay, let me set the scene. So for a long time, I was driving the kids to school. And on the way, there were lots of other children walking to school and some riding bikes. And I'm trying to excuse myself here. But anyway, there was this person that we always referred to as Scooter Boy. And he would go so fast on his scooter. And I would always say, oh, I'm really worried. You know, if I knew his parents, I could talk to them about how fast he's going, because I do think it's quite dangerous. And he always had this yellow, like raincoat thing on and a backpack. And I would just always be concerned about this child and them going far too fast on this scooter. Anyway, then we're in the supermarket and... (laughs) One of the kids said, oh, look, that's Scooter Boy. And we looked, he was there in his yellow raincoat and his backpack. And it turns out Scooter Boy is approximately 45 years old. He's a grown adult in charge of his own scooter. So I didn't feel it was appropriate to go up to the person who was shopping with and make comments on the speed he was travelling. So there we go. That is where we are today. Oh, and quick panto update. I'll make it quick because there's lots to cover today. Your girls got fairy dust at the rehearsal yesterday. They said, oh, we're going to give you some fairy dust so that when you do your magic, (laughs) there's actual fairy dust. I'm so excited about fairy dust. They were saying, oh, we're not sure what it's, what, you know, exactly what it's going to be. What colour do you want? (laughs) Oh my goodness, this is incredible. So very excited about that. Now, we've got lots of books that are being read and talked about on the Facebook group. If, you ha- if you're not there, go to Facebook, type in Quick Book Reviews, you'll see the orange logo. You'd be very welcome there. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to tell you what everyone's been reading um, because there's it's such a variety. It's absolutely fantastic. And the other new thing, well, the other things aren't new, but this is a new thing. The one new thing is that you can you can now take part in this podcast. So if you go to www.speakpipe.com slash QBR. So the QBR is for QuickBook Reviews. www.speakpipe, S-P-E-A-K, P-I-P-E dot com slash QBR. I'll put a link in the show notes as you do. 
then you can record up to 90 seconds. You can tell me what book you're reading at the moment, what your books you've read recently that you've enjoyed, Biscuit of Choice, if you'd care to drop that in, that would be great. Just whatever you want, and then we can slot them into the episodes. Now, if 10,000 of you all phone, not phone, if 10,000 of you leave a message, I might not be able to fit them all in straight away. But no, go on, give it a go. Let's give it a whirl. This podcast is about all about books and love of books. So let's hear about your love of books. So there is that as well. Let's get started because we've got some crackers today. They're all winners. We've got no duds. So first of all, we've got The Last Remains by Ellie Griffiths and Ellie is going to come on and talk to us about that book. Then we've got The Only Suspect by Louise Candlish and Louise is going to come and talk to us about that book. Then we've got People Change by Sarah Jafari. Guys, you need to hear about that book. And then you've got to, we've got Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Again, it's a good book. And finally, The Gardener by Sally Vickers. Another good book. Honestly, we're, we're rocking and rolling today. So let's get started straight away. First book, last rem- The Last Remains, not Last Remains, Philippa, The Last Remains by Ellie Griffiths. And many of you will love, as I do, the Ruth Galloway crime series. And this is, we've been told, it's the last Ruth Galloway story for now. And if you've not read any Ruth stories, you can pick this up and still enjoy it. It just ties up some of the loose pieces or does it or doesn't it who knows I won't give any spoilers away but you could read it and still really enjoy it because it's got some great sort of crime things to be solved anyway here here we go let's do the blurb when builders renovating a cafe in Kings Lynn find a human skeleton behind a wall they call for DCI Harry Nelson and Dr Ruth Galloway it's clear that the bones are modern and they are soon identified as the remains of Emily Pickering a young archaeology student who went missing in the 1990s suspicion falls on her course tutor and another member of the group Cathbad As they investigate, Nelson and his team uncover a tangled web of relationships within the student group and the adults leading them. Just when the team seemed to be making progress, Cathbad disappears. Was it guilt that led him to flee? The race is on, first to find Cathbad and then to exonerate him. But will Ruth and Nelson uncover the truth in time to save their friend? Let's do first sentence. I'm going to do it from chapter one. Friday, the 11th of June, 2021. The unassuming shop in a King's Lynn back street has lived many lives. Once, beyond most people's living memory, it was a bakery. I loved it. (laughs) I loved it. I am fully committed to the Ruth Galloway series, as you know, and it's It's sad that it's the last one for now, but it feels right because there's so many other brilliant Eddie Griffiths books to read. And this does her justice, I think. But enough about me. Let's talk to Ellie now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome back to the podcast one of our favourite authors in the whole wide world, whose latest book is The Last Remains, Ellie Griffiths, you are welcome. Oh, I'm delighted to be here on one of my favourite podcasts in the whole wide world. So <laughs> lovely to be here, Philippa. Oh, thank you. Now, let's start with the basics. Can you tell us a little bit about this book? So the book is The Last Remains. It's book 15 in the Dr Ruth Galloway Mysteries series. And I have said, uh, I, I kind of tried to, to um, 
get everyone ready for this early on. So I did say, <laughs> you know, a few months ago that this would be the last book for now. I'm not closing the door forever, but it's certainly the last for now. It's the end of a certain part of Ruth's chapter. So um, the book starts when uh, Ruth is called in because a body is found behind the wall of a cafe in King's Lynn. And the cafe was once called the Green Child and has rather an odd sort of backstory. The, the bones are that of, of a student, a Cambridge University student who went missing 20 years ago. And Ruth, of course, is drawn into the investigation, which has uncomfortable echoes, not just for her, because the girl was an archaeology student, but also for her dear friend Cathbad. And for, for Nelson, who investigates, and for Clough, who investigates too. So all sorts of things are coming together. And it's a book that's full of decisions for Ruth, really. She has to make lots of decisions, not just about this case, but of course about her relationship with Nelson and also about her, her professional life. Because uh, the book, when the book starts, her, her department at the university is under threat of closure, which I wanted to bring in because sadly it's happening to so many archaeology departments at the moment, including amazingly famous ones like, like the wonderful department at Sheffield University. So I wanted to bring that in uh, and how we're not valuing archaeology enough. So, yeah. so many decisions for Ruth. Uh, yes, in some ways I thought I should be wearing black for this interview, Ellie, because uh, in <laughs> mourning for, for Ruth, not n no more books for now. But you know, it, I don't want people to feel sad and, and wear black, though I do appreciate it. <laughs> you know, I want... I want I want people to sort of feel feel hopeful, I guess, and not just because there might be more Ruth books, but you know, I'm going to write other things. I'm not giving up writing. It's, it's just that this is is the I think the right place to pause this series for now. I was interested about that because it felt, in a way, it was an easy decision to make, but was it actually hard to write it when it came to it? It was quite an easy decision to make. Really, I had sort of always planned this. Um, well, I'd only planned 10 books. I think I spoke to you about the, around the 10th book and saying, oh, there'll be 10 books. <laughs> and then actually I did, because there was another, sort of, that was another kind of crossroads in Ruth's life, uh, the crossing places in Ruth's life. Um, but then I had an idea for the 11th. So, so that went on really. And I had an idea for sort of a few more books. So, but I did, I knew we were coming to it. And funnily enough, the book before, which is The Locked Room, was the one that set in lockdown. And that was quite a difficult decision whether to include lockdown or not, but in the end I did. And, you know, as lockdown gave us all time to think, well, uh, if you weren't on the front line doing those incredibly important jobs that we now don't value, mm. um, if you weren't on the front line, it was a time to think. And it was a time to think for me, and it was a time to think for Ruth and Nelson. So I think after book 14, after the locked room, this one had to be the last one, at least for now. And I was wondering, because I imagine each book you have a notepad of things to write about Ruth and her relationships. And with each book, you can take some of those and put them in a story. Did you have so many that you wanted to cram in? Not that it felt like that, but I just I could almost picture you thinking, oh, I really want to put this in and this in. But how do you do it? Yes, definitely. I certainly wanted to clear up any loose ends not just maybe from the book before, but from the whole series. You know, it was 15 books. And there were a couple of loose ends. Um, I mean, I don't know if people who've read all the books will know what I mean, but I think they might. You know, there were a few things that I haven't followed up. So I did want to, my working title for the book was Closure, you know, and I wanted to bring, bring everything together. So there were, there was quite a lot that needed to go in there, which was made it good to write because, you know, you always want to have too much material. So that was good, but it, it was quite tricky. It was quite a balancing act. And I think I was very, very relieved when I'd finished it. 
more relieved than I normally am when I finish a book. So, um, yeah, so it was it was quite a balancing act to get everything in. But hope I've done it. Hope nobody's going to say, why didn't you tell us about dot, dot, dot? So I think we brought everything together. <laughs> oh, yes. And, and did it brilliantly, I think. We're not going to talk about endings or anything. We're not going to do any spoilers. But just in general terms, did it take some doing to come up? with the ending or did you always know it it took some coming up with I have to say um and and in a way I've always said that between I didn't really have a story arc at the beginning I had an arc for for you know each individual book but I didn't have an overarching arc so I didn't know at the beginning what was going to happen beyond that it would be complicated and that Ruth and Nelson would have a long relationship I did know that from the beginning um, so I I feel, you know, I, I've rather been sort of saying rather desperately to people, well, that's good that I didn't know because it makes it more organic, you know, and it makes the books um, much more like real life because in real life, obviously, we don't know the end of the chapter. But so I did, I did, I have to say, keep myself guessing really right to the end of, of The Last Remains. And I hope in a way I'll keep mm-hmm. readers guessing. So I wasn't quite sure, even though I knew that this would have to be the last one for a bit and that certain questions would have to get answered. Still wasn't quite sure, even while I was writing it. <laughs> Were you ready for these characters, for Ruth, Nelson, Cathbar and, and all, all the crew to just take over your life so much? No, really not. No, uh, I mean, I was so pleased when people started to have that connection with them. And really quite early on, I think people were connected with Ruth and I, I'm not even sure why. And I think sometimes you don't know why that happens. I and mean, I think maybe, you know, the books are quite immediate. They're written in the present tense. I think people, you know, we never discover anything before or after Ruth. It's always at the same time. So I think people have sort of really, um, you know, bonded with Ruth in that way and related to her. Uh, but but the wider characters, no, you know, I didn't know. Because I'm not only having to bring everything together in this book for certain characters, but also for the for the wider cast, you know, for Cathbad and Judy and Clough and uh, all the, the other characters sort of have got to have their own arc as well. So I wasn't ready for that. And I'm just so... I am so grateful for it. You know, there, there are there are sort of um, Facebook groups out there that, that I didn't start, you know, called, you know, Dr. Ruth Galloway uh, readers and, and things like that. Ellie Griffith's books, I think one of them's called, which are full of just lovely people who put who do these these clubs, you know, on the, under their own on their own time and get together to talk about various characters and things and I try not to <laughs> lurk because nothing more annoying than having an author lurking coming in to say actually that's wrong but actually I'm more like so oh gosh I'd never thought of that um but it's so lovely that they have sort of taken the life of their own really. I think for me Ruth meant so much because I she's a part of me I, I could see part of her she's not you know she's not this stick thin person who thinks she has to be perfect and life is perfect stuff happens and she deals with it and she's I love the comments that she thinks about things and you know that's so lovely to hear Philip and I have to say you've been a supporter really from early days so I'm super grateful for that and uh, I do think people have responded to Ruth not being perfect and I think when I started out the book there were quite a few books written about this kind of perfect like you say stick thing woman who run 20 miles before (laughs) breakfast and then come back and cook a gourmet meal and everybody in all the books you know villains police officers alike is madly in love with them you know you did have a few characters (laughs) like that I think not so many now but I think certainly when I started there were quite so I did 
want Ruth to be different and maybe a bit relatable in that she was very um, very confident in her job, mm. but not super confident in herself. Mm. You know, she never, never knows how to tie a scarf or never quite sure if she's got the right clothes on. And I think a lot of us are like that. So I, I do I do hope she's relatable in that way. You know, she likes cats. Who doesn't like cats? And, and books and Bruce Springsteen. Who doesn't like <laughs> And Radio things? 4 as well. And Radio 4 and The Archers, yes. Which I don't know yeah. if it's a shared passion of ours. Yes. Has writing Ruth changed you? Oh, that's a good question. You always ask good questions. Yeah, I think it probably has. I think so. I think it's changed me because it's the first time I've written a character that um, has such a long lifespan over so many books, and it's kind of taught me how to do that. My first four books, which were written, you know, under my real name, Domenica de Rosa, which, as I've said before, sounds completely made up, but is in fact my real name. They were all standalones. And I did I did have that feeling when I'd finished and thinking, well, I wonder what happened to the characters. You know, I wonder, wonder what the next bit of... So with Ruth, I haven't had to do that. So that's been great, really, to, to carry on. But I think I've learned quite a few things about writing while writing about Ruth, definitely. And, and maybe, yeah, maybe she has changed me. I haven't always agreed with her. Um, Quercus, my, my lovely publishers, who again have been super supportive all the way through, and uh, you know you don't get to write fifteen books without a massive amount of support from your publishers. Had the same editor for all the books, the wonderful Jane Wood, which is great too. They've done this thing for the tour, which I'm going to go on on a on a tour where people can write letters to Ruth, and they said, you know, to start things off, why don't you write a letter to Ruth? And I thought, oh, really? And I started off, dear Ruth, and it, and it flowed out of me, Philippa, all, oh. these, all these feelings like, you know, uh, well, you know, it was great to get to know, to meet you. But, you know, you've put me through a lot and you've been very stubborn <laughs> and you've been very difficult. <laughs> and so it was really kind of, you know, it was therapy for me. But I did end up saying thank you to her. That, that's a great idea. And as we approach publication day, does it feel any different for this book than the other books as it is the last for now of Ruth it it does feel different it does feel different and um I'm always quite nervous before publication and that's something that I'm sad to say for any sort of you know debut writers who are listening as I know so many writers listen to to your podcast I'm sorry to say it gets worse with every book um because I suppose because when you know there are people waiting for the books, you know, um, my first four books, I don't think anyone read them outside my family, which is quite nice, really. Uh, but, in you know, now I know people are waiting to read them. So so the nerves do come. And of course, they're particularly strong for this book. Um, so that feels different. Um, but also I do feel and I hope this won't change after people have read the book, but I do feel quite a sense of satisfaction. I feel like that it was the right thing to do. And I'm just super excited about the next thing. So it does feel a bit different, I have to say. I think I will feel quite emotional. When the books, I've just had my um, delivery of, of the, the hardbacks. You know, you get your author copies, only 12. I got them delivered to my house and I... And I uh, open the box up without thinking I should have made a big moment of this I should have you know and I've got a new kitten Pip and uh, I should have got him to be with me at the opening and I just ripped open the, the box and took out the book and I thought I should have made a bit more of that moment but it is still really really lovely well it was a special moment for you oh yes on your yes. own opening. it was still a special moment for me yes I think I just wasn't sure what would be in the box which is you know really quite slow of me great, great big box from her it probably is going to be my yeah. yes there's a clue there it I think might be a puppy or something I don't know <laughs> yes of course I mean and talk about podcasts we should mention your podcast which is brilliant oh well thank you that means a lot coming from you who are such a brilliant podcast interviewer yeah it's um 
it's called The Plot Thickens and it's just a few sort of chats really with, with people who've helped me along the way and it's sort of to mark this this moment of having uh, the last Ruth book out. So the first one is with Jane as my editor who has, has edited all my Ellie Griffiths books and the one that's coming up is going to be so much fun because I'm chatting with my two crime writing besties William Shaw and Leslie Thompson so that is I, I think it's a lot of fun and then I'll be chatting with, with Val McDermott who's again been a huge supporter right from the beginning. Oh that's fantastic yeah I thoroughly recommend that. It's quite hard though philippa isn't it it's doing a podcast well i think writing's hard so yes i'll stick to podcast if you had to choose one moment from your life that made you become an author what would it be gosh philippa what another really good question i think it might have been i think that I think probably it all started when my mum used to read to me and I've got two sisters and she, she read to all of us for a long time. So I think, you know, she I remember her reading to me and my sisters who were older were sort of getting ready to go out for the evening, but they were still sitting on the stairs listening because my mum was such a good reader. And I just remember sort of, I suppose, the power of words and the power of her storytelling. Uh, but I think it might have been the moment when I, I wrote a, a short story about Starsky and Hutch for school. You know, I was a big Starsky and Hutch fan and um, I killed off Starsky in this story when people in my class, because people started to get sort of keen on reading things that I'd written, and somebody, some people started to read it and they cried. I think that was the moment where I thought, maybe I can do this. Maybe I know how to do it. And it's quite a mysterious thing, isn't it? I teach creative writing and uh, even, even to creative writing teachers, it's quite a mysterious thing when you suddenly know, because it's just the order in which mm. you put words on the page. But, but you, I thought, wow, I can make them cry. Wow, just by writing something, I can make them actually cry. And, you know, I don't want to sound like a psychopath here, but that was quite a nice moment, really. Um, so, so I think that could have been the moment. I think not just, I always wanted to be a writer, but I think that was the moment when I thought, perhaps I can do it. Perhaps I know how to do it. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, your last question is an odd one, but okay. you're used to that from me. I'm ready. As we talk, I am in rehearsals in the role of fairy godmother in the pantomime Cinderella. If you were in the pantomime Cinderella, what part might you play? Oh, that's such a good question and good luck. <laughs> Thank you, I need it. <laughs> You're an actor, you know. I'm, I'm very... I mean, Sandra. I would, I, I, would lo I love <laughs> acting. I did loads at university and I would love to do it again. Oh, okay, Cinderella, let me think. Um, I think you'd be a good fairy godmother, I have to well, say. Well, I, I feel like I would quite like to be fair, coming in coming in stage right, isn't it? Coming in the good side of the stage, not the bad <laughs> side of the stage. But also, I kind of feel I have it in me to be quite wicked. Um, and I feel like I might be quite quite a good wicked stepmother. I think I quite, might quite enjoy that. Um, <laughs> I... <laughs> Well, I, I've never really had the chance to be super wicked on stage. I, I nearly always played fallen women, actually, to be honest with you. Um, I was Abigail in the Crucible. I suppose she's quite wicked. Uh, Mrs. Cheveley in The Ideal Husband. So I think I would challenge my wicked side and go for the wicked stepmother. I can make them cry. Yeah, yes, I could do that again. Oh, there's dear. a theme here. I'm there's a bit concerned a about theme. Oh, dear. I also like to make people laugh. <laughs> she adds carefully at the end. <laughs> No, that's great. Well, everyone is going to love reading The Last Remains and we'll just keep following you and reading all your books because you bring such joy to us. Ellie Griffiths, thank you so much. Thank you so much and thanks for everything. Coming up, 
another interview with author Louise Candlish, and more book reviews. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So let's get on to the next book, The Only Suspect by Louise Candlish. I love this. It just says, wrong place, wrong time wrong man. Listen to the blurb on this one. Alex lives a comfortable life with his wife, Beth, in a leafy suburb of Silver Vale. Fine, so he's not the most extrovert guy on the street. He prefers to keep himself to himself. But he's a good husband and an easygoing neighbour. That's until Beth announces the creation of a nature trail on a local site that's been disused for decades. And suddenly Alex is a changed man. Now he's always watching, questioning, struggling to hide his dread. As the landscapers get to work, a secret threatens to surface from years ago. Back in Alex's 20s, when he got entangled with a seductive young woman called Marina, who threw both their lives into turmoil and who sparked a police hunt for a murder suspect that was never quite what it seemed. Let's do first sentence. Chapter one, Alex. Black skies would have made a more fitting backdrop, some monstrous winter storm that tore the house from its foundations. But as it transpired, the moment he'd been dreading for 25 years came on a still, gentle morning in May. Oh, my goodness. I mean, Louise Candlish. We've got Ellie Griffiths, who's queen of crime. Louise Candlish is the queen of thrillers. 
And you will have read so many of hers. You'll have read, I don't know, The Heights, The Other Passenger, Those People, Our House. She's written, oh, like 15, 20 books. She keeps pulling it out the hat and she does indeed with this one. I thought it was great. It had the twist, the mystery, good turns, drew me in straight away, all that you would want. Let's go and talk to Louise now. Well, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome back to the podcast Louise Canlis, the author of The Only Suspect. Louise, welcome back. Hi again. How are you, Philippa? Oh, I'm very good. I'm very cold. Are you feeling a bit chilly today? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that we can't be seen because I'm under a duvet and I've, <laughs> I'm covered in cushions and I've got fingerless gloves on and the only thing missing is the dog. <laughs> I've got thermal socks on and I'm cradling a cup of tea, <laughs> as I always like to do. So that's good. But anyway, let's get on to this glorious book. Can you start by telling us a little bit about it? Well, it's called The Only Suspect. Probably you need to get about halfway through the book to, to make sense of that title. But it's it's a thriller, but it's quite um, it's one of my more Hitchcockian ones, I would say. It's a slow burn sort of mystery involving two timelines, one set in 1995 when our characters are very young, just in their um, early to mid 20s, just enjoying the scene in London in the 90s that I remember um, maybe not quite as clearly as I, I thought I would remember it while I was writing. And then the second timeline is in the present day and is 25 years later and the narrator is a changed man from from the man he was in the 90s. And he's got, um, it soon emerges, a pretty huge secret that he's been hiding across the years. Excellent summary. It felt a bit to me like our house, uh, not identical, but it had that same feeling of, you know, things are happening, but you just can't work it out. Yeah, well, I suppose that's what I'm trying to do with all of my books. But I know what you mean. There's a there's a parallel there where the you know, you just have that sense of menace where you know something really terrible is going to be revealed. And, you know, that's that's the fun of, of writing those sorts of mysteries is discovering if my evil design has the, the effect that I hope it will. And you never really know that until you get your first readers. So, you know, there's always because they are quite they are traps, you know, for the for the reader and they are puzzles. And editors, obviously, are, are, the, are the gatekeepers. They will say whether or not something works and, and agents and actually, in the case of The Only Suspect, my agent and her two assistants were the first to read it. And, and the two assistants who are both, both younger guessed the big reveal. So I, I, I kind of took, took that on board quite seriously because I had hoped that, you know, it worked as a twist perfectly off the bat. Um, but it just, but I, so I went back and I, and I did a, just a little bit of tinkering which I think made it work better. So yes, I, I know what you mean. There is, a, there is a parallel, I guess, with, with our house, but with the two timelines, you know, sort of building up the tension. But in this case, they're two and a half decades apart. And so you've got two completely different worlds. You know, the world has changed. I can't imagine there's ever been a period in history that even begins to match the digital revolution. And so the difference between those pre-smartphone lifestyles and, you know, what you can get away with now, yeah. <laughs> which is very little. I mean, it just couldn't be starker. So it was really, you know, really good fun to contrast those two worlds. 
Fantastic. And I wanted to ask you about those two timelines. Did you write each timeline individually or did you write the book as we read it? I Neither. I never write the two timelines individually, although I might have days when I'm going through one strand and just checking that it flows. Generally, I, I write kind of chronologically, but often skipping ahead because some chapters or some sort of subplots or some little detailed scenes I haven't sort of thought of yet. And then I'll add those later. So I write it loosely chronologically. And actually, with two timelines, it, it's quite a nice way to the, the writing process becomes more enjoyable, I think, because you just get a break. If you're getting bored with one set of characters or one plot line or, it's, or you're stuck in some way, you can go to the other timeline, which might be flowing a bit better and, you know, get your mojo back with that. Um, but when I revise and edit, I, I will read the timelines separately, just make sure they work. And actually, it's amazing what you pick up when you do that. You know, all kinds of things that are assumed because of what you've learned from the, the other timeline in between. And so you have to just make sure they do work independently as well. And of course, editors and, and proofreaders will be doing the same. So is, is writing two timelines harder or easier? I mean, in some ways, I imagine it's harder because you've got the two to remember, but also easier because you sort of can keep refreshing and working on different bits that you're enjoying in that moment. Yeah, I mean, both. It's, it's more enjoyable, I think, for me. Um, because I do get bored quite easily and, you know, I like to move on to, to new ideas and new plots. And so for me, it keeps things fresh because, you know, a book might take a year to write. But it's definitely harder in terms of plotting because you, you, you're basically plaiting or, or weaving um, rather than, you know, just one linear sort of journey. But it does mean that you can be a lot more playful, you can be a lot more devious about, you know, seeding clues and scattering red herrings and, and things like that. I just think you naturally get tension when you're seeing the same characters or some of the same characters in the future. And you're just, you know, it, it's immediately you're wondering how on earth they got there. Mm. And, you know, who who's there? Who's missing? What happened to the characters who, you know, we're close to in the past, but don't seem to have had a mention in the future or if they do then you know in a kind of very intriguing way so it's I guess it's a device I mean I don't really ever think about writing in um you know a, a, a kind of creative writing course type of way I've never been taught how to write a novel and so um probably I'm doing things that are known devices but to me, it's just, you know, how I fancied writing the story and how I thought it might work. But it's definitely, I mean, the more the more narrators and the more plots you have, the more strands, the harder it is. But I think the more, um, the, the easier it is to keep your own interest mm. fresh because you're constantly moving around and you're getting in, into different characters' heads rather than just one character. But it's by no means my most complicated book. And so I actually found this one to be a joy I, I felt like I was in control. I think the other passenger and our house, there were times when I felt like I'd completely lost lost the plot, literally. You know, ha had to really kind of recharge and, and go back to the drawing board a bit because they both have very complicated plots. But this didn't feel so complicated, so I felt a bit more like I was master of, <laughs> of my own destiny, which I, which is a, a very nice feeling. And, you know, you're held in such high regard uh, as always delivering fantastic thrillers and 
twists and turns. Sorry, no pressure. <laughs> As you go on, is it easier in a way to write the twists and turns because you, you get used to the mechanics of it? Or is it harder because you've got to keep coming up with them? I think it's harder because there are only so many twists available. Um, and so everything is going to be a kind of variation on, you know, the twists that we all recognise and that, you know, we've seen in movies and read in books, you know, for the last half century. But, you know, there's always a way of bringing a new twist to a twist, actually. And, you know, they do say that the, the best books have, you know, all the elements that you recognise, but differently arranged or, you know, with a, an unusual setting or with just, just that little extra something. There comes a point where you will have to repeat things. You will have to repeat, repeat plot lines and mysteries and elements. I guess I just, I, you know, I, to me, it's really, really important to feel like I'm offering something new each time. But, you know, if someone were to read all 16 of my books in a row, they would start to see, you know, the things that I'm particularly obsessed with. And they'd start to see, you know, some things that I've maybe had, you know, a, an idea that was in its infancy in one book. So, for instance, The Sudden Departure of the Frasers was my first sort of property noir, I suppose. And I think of it as Baby Our House. And I think if someone read that and then read Our House, they would see my writing and my you know, how I explore and develop themes, they would see the journey. You know, who reads an author's work, you know, sort of chronologically and one after the other to sort of, you know, to make those conclusions. So you're kind of slightly getting away with the fact that you hope that, you know, you, this book is, is judged on its own merits and no one's going to get in touch and say, hang on a minute, you had a character called Kate in that book. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, that <laughs> there was a, a not dissimilar crime in your book five books ago. But I do, I mean, to me, the most important thing is to, to keep the quality um, high each time. And um, that, that sort of matters to me more than anything else, really. So that, you know, people, it's a kind of, you know, guaranteed good read. And it's not going to be a situation where mm, this one isn't as good as the others. Um, I'd rather I'd rather just not publish a book that year if I didn't think it was up to my usual standards. But I'm also constantly looking for ideas and for um, new plots. And so, you know, and, and the world is a crazy, crazy place. So, you know, there's a never ending supply. I, I, I'm slightly sort of astonished when people say, oh, I've, I've I haven't got an I haven't got an idea for my new book because <laughs> to me that's the easy bit. I find that actually, you know, kind of I'm getting the thing done is the it's the hard bit. Having the idea is, you know, the best bit. <laughs> and what's the hardest day for you? Is it a day of writing when the words don't come? Is it the day before publication? What's the the epicenter of pain for you? Epicenter of pain is always rejection. Um, although I have learned, you know, I must have had thousands of, of rejections in my writing career for the years because it has been going on for 20 years now. And so, you know, the, as, as we all know, no week goes by without news of another rejection of one kind or the other. So I've learned to, you know, absolutely, you know, just walk away from rejection and just take it on the chin. So but that is, you know, that's still the hardest, you know, when you were hoping to have a hit and it didn't sell or, you know, you open the newspaper and it's a bad review or you look on on Amazon and, you know, there's a whole run of terrible reviews. You know, that that's definitely the worst bit. 
But it never affects how I actually feel about the book, though. So I have learned, you know, that it's that whole old Kipling line from if, you know, to treat triumph and disaster, you know, both imposters the same. And they are both imposters. And so I try not to be too egotistical, but I also don't plunge into a gloom either. I just, um, I know how I feel about the stories. I think they're good and I think they will appeal to the majority of readers. But, you know, it's a real fool's errand to believe you can keep everyone happy all the time with every book. I mean, it's just, it's just not possible. It would be exhausting. So, so there is pain, but I wouldn't, you, I wouldn't say there's an epicenter of pain it's not that intense <laughs> good good we like that <laughs> well with with your career of writing if you look back in your life could you identify the moment that you decided to write that you wanted to write that your authorship was born I think I always hoped that I would write fiction but you know it felt very out of reach as a career you know I needed a salary the moment I I left university and and during university actually you know I always worked always um, paid my own way didn't have any you know any inherited wealth or any help from parents or relatives or anything so you know sitting and writing fiction would have been a hobby it wouldn't have been in any way a feasible career plan so you know I I was never going to be able to do it until you know I'd had a career doing something else first but also I think I was very aware in my 20s that I didn't really have anything to say and so I thought you know I thought that writing a novel was something I might be able to do I'd always been a massive reader I'd studied English literature at university so it was kind of you know I was the right kind of brain to, to write fiction But um, I was also aware that, you know, I I hadn't really lived enough. Um, And so, you know, I'm really in awe of, you know, sort of teenagers and early 20-something writers who can put together an amazing plot with all kinds of observations about humanity. Because, you know, I I was in my 30s before I, I, I sort of had those observations, I think. So I suppose from even my teenage years, I hoped one day I would write fiction. But I never, I never imagined I would do it as early as I did actually I thought it might be something I would do um, you know in my 60s or something like that maybe after I was retired I might um, try and write a novel so it kind of slightly took me by surprise when I started my first novel I was backpacking actually I was in my early 30s I was in Sicily backpacking and I just had this idea and so I just started writing the story in a notebook and that ended up being being published mm. a couple of years later. Well, we're on to the very serious questions now, Louise. So just prepare yourself <laughs> for the level of intellect required for this. Um, the <laughs> okay. first one is we need to know what biscuit is powering your writing. What is your biscuit of choice as a world leading author? <laughs> Um, I don't really eat biscuits because I'm the kind of person who would eat the whole packet. So I just don't have them in the house. But if I were um, going to have a biscuit, I would probably have those um, Tunnock's marshmallows. Oh, you know, the tea yes. Cakes. Yes. Yeah. And I'd probably have like four or five. I wouldn't just have one. And then I also really like Florentines, any kind of Florentine I really like. I, I do pretty much like all biscuits. I love shortbread. Mm. Oh, yes. You're you're talking my language. I like all of this. What's yours? Oh, well, you see, 
it has to be something that's covered the, in the most chocolate. So really, it's chocolate, but I can call it a biscuit. Yeah. So what, like a Kit Kat or something? A, a chunky Kit Kat's acceptable, but Marks and Spencer's do a box <laughs> of a variety pack of biscuits heavily coated in chocolate. And uh, yeah, those, you get about 30 in a box and that'll last me a few minutes. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say that would last me about two days, I think. <laughs> no, that's, we're not talking even hours, I'm afraid. No. With, with... It's awful. It's awful. I mean, I just don't understand how um, people can have one biscuit. <laughs> it's just, you know, an extraordinary gift <laughs> that I don't possess. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and would we want to? Um, your, your last question. At this point, I find myself rehearsing for the role of fairy godmother in a pantomime, in the pantomime Cinderella. And if you were in the pantomime Cinderella, what role would you want to play? Um, oh, I would definitely want to be the evil stepmother. Ah, <laughs> There is an evil stepmother in Cinderella, isn't there? I'm just trying to remember, yeah. There is, yes, the ugly sister's mother. Yeah, I think I would be her. Yeah, I'd be the, you know, the kind of conductor of the the horror and cruelty. Um, Because I think that would be the the best part. (laughs) I think that would be the most fun. You could really, you know, kind of... um, ham it up in a big way i think (laughs) well that's fantastic as is your book so louise candlish author of the only suspect thank you so much thank you thank you for having me next book this is an amazing one people change by sarah jafari the minute i saw the cover of this book i wanted to read it i don't know it's just two people holding each other and there's so much of a story in there I just thought I've got to I've got to read it and uh, I loved it let me give you the blurb on this when Shirin bumps into Kian at a house party in Brixton she's taken aback by the feelings that resurface they last saw one another 10 years ago as 16 year olds at school in Hull and the weight of everything left unsaid since then still hangs between them But now they're back in each other's lives. It's harder to run from the past. There's nothing worse than losing the person you trust with your deepest secrets. Can it be different second time around? Oh, right. Let's do the first sentence. Brixton now. They arrive at the housewarming party at 10pm. The Edwardian house sits squarely between Brixton and Hernhill Station. Shirin Bayot does not particularly like going to Brixton because she feels complicit in the jarring and ever-increasing gentrification each time she is in the area. And that is likely because she is. She begrudgingly enjoys the overpriced coffee shops with their excessive number of plants, millennial pink sofas and rose gold accents, spending money on various vegan dishes that even she can make at home for a fraction of the price. Uh, all I want to say is I love this book. I read this book everywhere I went. I read it on the dog walk. Um, I was driving to London. I didn't read it while I was driving to London. Let's be clear on that. But stopped at a service station, got the book out, started reading it. I want everyone to immediately read it. It's about so much. It's oh, it's just a great book. It's very moving. It's very thoughtful. It's very, it's it's a call to action. It's a, it's about the things that you carry about guilt about. Oh, so much. 
It's brilliant. Please go and read this. People change. Sarah Jafari. Superb. Next book is Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin. Now, last year, everyone I saw reading books was reading this book and everybody was raving about it. So, you know, when that happens, you just think, well, either... I am going to love it as well or I'm going to hate it because my expectations are just so high a book can't fulfil it. But this book certainly can. In fact, we did it as uh, the book club for Lauren's um, Patreon book club. And last night we met sort of online to talk about it. And uh, I think 99.99999% of people absolutely loved it. They really did. It's so different. Let me read you the blurb for this one. Two kids meet in a hospital gaming room in 1987. One is visiting her sister. The other is recovering from a car crash. The days and months are long there. Their love of video games becomes a shared world of joy, escape and fierce competition. But all too soon, that time is over. It fades from view. When the pair spot each other eight years later in a crowded train station, they are catapulted back to that moment. The spark is immediate and together they get to work on what they love, making games to delight, challenge and immerse players, finding an intimacy in digital worlds that eludes them in their real lives. Their collaborations make them superstars. This is the story of the perfect world Sadie and Sam build, the imperfect world they live in, and of everything that comes after success. Money, fame, duplicity, tragedy. Do first sentence. It's also a beautiful looking book. Uh, chapter one. Before Mazer invented himself as Mazer, he was Samson Mazer. And before he was Samson Mazer, he was Samson Masseur, a change of two letters that transformed him from a nice, ostensibly Jewish boy to a professional builder of worlds. And for most of his youth, he was Sam, S-A-M, on the Hall of Fame of his grandfather's Donkey Kong machine, but mainly Sam. It's a memorable book. It's different. The writing is really intense. I don't think you can zip through it. So if you're someone who needs to be able to turn a page every two seconds, you will struggle with this book, I'd say, because... The words are meaty and they require great focus. I love the computer games part of this. There was one character that made me very cross in this book, but that's a mark of a good book. That shouldn't make you say, well, I didn't like the book because I disagreed with the character. No, it's part of the story. I just really enjoyed it. This is one for book clubs as well, because I think there's lots of different elements that you can talk about so I'd certainly be recommending it to some of the other book clubs I'm in I just thought it was great well worth a read bravo now the next one is The Gardener by Sally Vickers and it's the one time that I had forgotten I bought the book and I saw it come up as an audiobook on my computer my computer <laughs> on my library my cloud library it's called the library app on my phone I thought oh I'd love to uh, hear that story. I've read others of Sally Vickers and loved them. So why not? And it was only when I'd finished and I dropped something on the floor and was lying down to get it. I noticed on my bookshelves that this book was sitting there waiting to be read. So someone I know is going to get a pristine version of this book. So they're very lucky. Anyway, what I can say about the audiobook is that all along I was thinking, my goodness, this is a beautifully narrated. I wonder which actor is doing this because it's just perfect for the book. Turns out it's the author. 
So not only can she write brilliantly, she can narrate brilliantly as well. It's not irritating at all, is it? Anyway, Sally Vickers, the gardener, here's the blurb. Artist Hassie Days and her sister Margot buy a rundown house in Hope Wenlock on the Welsh marches. While Margot continues her London life in high finance, Hassie is left alone to work the large, long-neglected garden. She's befriended by eccentric, sharp-tongued Miss Foot, who recommends an Albanian migrant made to feel out of place among the locals to help Hassie in the garden. As she works the garden in his peaceful company, Hassie ruminates on her past life, the sibling rivalry that tainted her childhood and the love affair that left her with painful, unanswered questions. But as she begins to explore the history of the house and the mysterious nearby wood, old hurts begin to fade as she experiences the healing power of nature and discovers other worlds. Mm-mm-mm-mm. I loved this one. Let's do the first sentence. Chapter one. I shall never be able to manage all this, I said. I was surveying the moss-bound humps and ragged stretches of knee-high grass in the garden's rolling lawn with a mixture of awe and resentment. Rampant weeds had invaded those parts of the flowerbeds that were visible behind the hunched mass of brambles. But as I say, I loved it. It's, it says delightful on the front and I thought it was delightful. There's a lot to it and yet it's quite a gentle book. It's one of those still waters run deep ones. I thought it was great and I'm going to keep reading Sally's books because I just think she achieves such beauty in her writing. I thought it was excellent. Very, very good. And I love the fact that it's based quite locally to me as well. So I liked all the references with that. But anyway, so those are the five books. I'm going to give you the names of the books again. And then we're going to get on to what the Facebook group have been reading. And then I'm going to send you on your way. I know these podcasts are getting longer. I do apologise. So today we have talked about The Last Remains by Ellie Griffiths. And Ellie very kindly came on to talk about that book. We also talked about The Only Suspect by Louise Candlish. And Louise very kindly came on to talk about that book. And the other ones I reviewed for you are People Change by Sarah Jafari, Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow by Gabrielle Zevin and The Gardener by Sally Vickers. So those are your books. But what a what have the Facebook group been reading let me tell you so aim is reading the minders by john mars of course john came on very recently lauren's reading wrong place wrong time by gillian McAllister. oh yes we're getting some great books here mand is reading the witches of vardo sue is reading into the tangled bank discover the quirks habits and foibles of how we experience nature Sue, that sounds interesting. Laurie's reading The Wickham Market Murder by Ian Maitland. Natalie's reading Salt Lane by William Shaw. Rob is reading Terry Pratchett, A Life with Footnotes. Fiona's reading Nine Perfect Strangers by Leanne Moriarty. And she said she's halfway through and it's very difficult to put down. Sarah's reading The House of Earth and Blood by Sarah J. Maas. Claire's reading Triflers Need Not Apply by Camilla Bruce. And Lauren says that she really enjoyed that one. She's not usually a fan of historical fiction, but combined with thriller and true crime aspect, it's a winner. There you go. David is just starting to read Light Seekers by Femi Kiyudi. Have I pronounced that right? 
Coyote, probably. Apologies. Jacqueline is reading the third Tillian Poe book by M.W. Craven, which is called The Curator. And uh, she she says she's it's keeping her awake. She's uh, started reading at 3 a.m. and hasn't gone back to sleep. Joe's reading Lethal White by Robert Galbraith. Amanda's reading Yellow Crocus by Leila Ibrahim. Kelly is reading Tomorrow, Tomorrow, Tomorrow. There you go, Kelly. Hope you've enjoyed it. Margaret's reading Craftfulness by Arzu Tazin and Rosemary Davidson. Nick is reading Agatha Christie, A Very Elusive Woman by Lucy Worsley. Oh, I want to read that one, yes. Tracy is reading Black Hearts by Doug Johnson uh, and is saying it's the best of the Skell series so far. Fabulous, feisty female funeral directors. I swear this was written with me in mind. Yeah, I love that series too, Tracy. I really do. Deb is also reading a book by M.W. Craven. She's reading Dead Ground. Great book. Francis is reading The Party by Elizabeth Day. Fiona's reading The Moon Sister by Lucinda Riley. Uh, that's a book five in the series and she's really enjoying them. And Elaine said she loved those books as well. Fiona's reading Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Durr. Jan is listening to The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman and feeling sorry for the police having to deal with them. Oh, and she's reading lots of other books. She's reading Susie Steiner book, Remain Silent. She's on the Kindle. She's reading The Janice Stone by Ellie Griffiths. And she's reading a non-fiction book, Mary Beard's. SPQR. My, my goodness, Jan, you are busy. And Elaine is reading Go Tell the Bees That I Have Gone, the last book of the epic Outlander series. Oh, yes, I'm hearing quite a lot about that one as well, Elaine. So lots of books. I love, isn't it amazing how we're all reading different books and some similarities? I just love it, love it, love it. Anyway, I've waffled enough. I need to send you on your way. Oh, my goodness, I've got some great books to talk to you about next week. Some great authors. There's some stunners, some stunner books next week as well. So have a great week. Just look after yourselves and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Quick Book Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.